Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. Um, well, the last time we spoke, we were talking about um, the, the Guadalcanal campaign. I think it's not right to call it a battle, really, is it? It's a 360-degree, three-dimensional campaign, isn't it? Land, sea, air, spanning the same kind of time as we said last time as Stalingrad. So, you know, it's, and as you pointed out last time, John, offering some similarities as well in terms of how the two sides digest the event or deal with the event but where had we where had we got to <laughs> i mean it's, we got, I to, we got to bloody got ridge to. hadn't we on october in october seven, i mean i guess october. we had we were all over the place sort of but it, <laughs> yeah i mean it is but it's like that the battle is like yeah. that you know it's just this sort of build up air land sea that goes on over months yeah um it's a total test of wills it's a yep. definite battle of attrition but i also pointed out too and i, I just think this is so crucial um, it's one element of a larger campaign that involves New Guinea too. Um, so in that sense, it's even more complex. So in yeah. a way it's like Stalingrad, but it's as if you had Stalingrad, but also another city, you know, that was frittering off German resources too. And, and John key to it is, is, is Henderson field, isn't it? Henderson field is the whole crux of everything. And, and this is named after, this is named after an aviator, isn't it? Yeah. Major Lofton Henderson, who was a Marine aviator killed in the battle of Midway. And of course, as the Marines land in August, 1942, and they, they start to uh, basically improve upon what the Japanese had already done mm. uh, and complete the That's airfield. That's right. Because the first, sorry. So the, so the first airfield that's built on Guadalcanal is built by the Japanese in July, early July, something like that. Right. And it's, it's in process still. Right. So then yeah. the Americans land, kick them off, because there's not very many of them. There's just a few, handful of Japanese engineers. And Korean laborers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So just laborers. So they're, they're good for nothing in terms of combat troops. The Americans take it over, then start landing aircraft on it. Then you have the first Marines arrive. Then there's the battles out at sea and the U.S. Navy disappears and the Marines are abandoned. <laughs> and then it's a, qu- a question of, of build-up, isn't it, from a Marine point of view? So how, how are the Americans being um, replenished and, and reinforced? And how are the Japanese being reinforced? Because they don't just stand idle, do they, the Japanese? They realize that this is a battle of wills. This is, this is a key moment in the war full stop. I mean, absolutely. So really, most of their assets are coming from Rabaul or elsewhere in the Solomons. And they're feeding in people and naval naval forces as they can get them. I mean, it's all very piecemeal. 
Um, so a Wes Rabal. So Rabal is in the in sort of the northern part of the Solomon Islands. It's on, it's on the island of New Britain, this huge island that spans right. kind of west to east, and Rabal's at the the northeastern tip. And just by that accident geography, it is really the the sort of focal point of that entire kind of Solomon's Eastern New Guinea's Admiralty's Island area because of the air power that can be projected. Yeah, and Rabal is absolutely key for the Japanese, isn't it? It is. I mean, they often call it the Gibraltar, the South Pacific, and, you know, so it is to some extent. And at this point in the war, too, the other thing that I think it's important to remember is that the Americans are of the mind, or the allies, if we're including the Australians, too, in the mix, um, they're of the mind that eventually we're going to have to go and take Rabal. Yeah. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. is going to be a a sort of a, a kind of, in terms of the South Pacific, a campaign almost akin to like what Normandy is to Europe in the sense of how they're looking at it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's an enormous objective. Uh, yeah. As time goes on, it gets very strong with air, land, and sea forces. Now, some of it's frittered down to Guadalcanal and over to Buna and San Hernando and Gona on New Guinea, but still, it's it's a formidable beast. And so, um, you know, one of the, one of the exciting air missions you would have had as an aviator, especially, you know, land-based from uh, from around Port Moresby and whatnot, is bombing Rabaul. That's sort of the first big deal for the Allies. Uh, as it turns out, they'll envelop it and bypass it, you know, as time goes on. But those decisions aren't made until much later into 1943. So yeah. as Guadalcanal's happening, you're figuring this is the first step to Rabaul, much less Japan. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, well, there's a hundred to thousand, a hundred thousand Japanese on Rabaul, something like that. If it's a proper, eventually, it's not like um, when they get to Guadalcanal, there's basically next to no one there, and the Japanese then fill it up with people. It's already, it's well established, isn't it? By 1943. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. and and of course, yeah, Guadalcanal at the time the battle starts is just a backwater mm. in which an airfield happens to be under construction. But I think both sides begin to recognize pretty quickly that that airfield really is the key to the entire war in the in the Southern Solomons, if not yeah. the entire South Pacific. Yeah. So that's why this becomes so important. And like Jim said, Henderson Field is the focus of everything. The Japanese try three different land offenses to try and take it August, September, and then October, much less what they're doing at air and sea. I mean, they're yeah. pounding it by air. They're pounding it for the naval gunnery and all that. That That's an interesting element of it, too. Um, the so-called Tokyo Express. Yeah, well, so, that's what, that's what, that was what I was going to say. You know, after how are the Japanese, you know, because I think it's important for people to understand that this is all happening on the north coast of Guadalcanal. You know, there's mm-hmm. absolutely nothing happening on the south coast. There's nothing happening in the center of the island, which is just mountainous jungle. There's no, on, on the south coast of Guadalcanal, there's no scope for building an air, airport or a port or anything whatsoever so it is only on this northern coastal strip where there is a little bit of sort of low growing lying land and there are these hills but most of the hills aren't particularly high i mean you know you can walk up to galloping horse for example and you know an hour from from the bottom i mean it's not a it's not a big deal and there is this flat bit near the coast which is the airport to this very day which is henderson field and the Americans bring in aircraft pretty quickly onto Henderson Field, but they're constantly being attacked by the Japanese. And you've got this little enclave around it. There's these hills just to the kind of south of, of Henderson Field, which includes Bloody Ridge and Edson's Ridge and uh, and other hills to the kind of, uh, that would be the southwest, I suppose. Um, and that's where the Marines are. That's where they're kind of dotted around, protecting. It's all about protecting this, creating this perimeter within which the airfield, the most precious thing of all, is 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 kept open. And so what the Japanese are doing, they're, they're landing either side, aren't they? Either side of that kind of, you know, yeah, east definitely. and west of... 
Well, yeah, they're landing either side and then moving people in the direction of the airfield and, and trying to take the airfield. From the um, south or from the southwest or from the southeast or whatever. Right, because, I mean, they, they in some ways throughout a lot of this campaign have freedom of landing, um, especially up at Cape Esperance, which is sort of, you know, right. I guess, what would that be, west of the, the airfield and sort of the tip yes. of the island there along the coast. And, um, yeah, so both sides really are able to reinforce and resupply. I mean, the Marine point of view is that, you know, they land and then the Navy abandons them after the disastrous battle of Savo Island, which we yeah. discussed last time, you know, which over a thousand allied sailors lose their lives in one night, four cruisers are sunk. Um, you know, so, but, but really what's happening is that the Navy is, is doing a kind of a dash and, and, uh, an unload supply operation. And so what that means is you you can probably get about two thirds or so of what you need. So mm. the Marines aren't starving, but it's not the kind of ideal logistical situation that Americans would want and be accustomed no. to. Yeah. Um, but of course there's nothing compared to what the Japanese are eventually going to deal with, you know, uh, you know, by, by the, uh, November, December, later than that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but you know, the, the other thing too, I mentioned the, the, the Naval side, the Tokyo express is a time when Japanese surface assets, including a couple of battleships, are going to come down. They're going to bombard Henderson Field and its environs, try and just pummel that American-held perimeter. Uh, and it's very violent. And American, all, any American who were there remembers that vividly, and it's just a horrible experience. But what I like to point out is this is like child's play compared to what the Americans are going to do to the Japanese in the war in terms of bombardments, uh, with battleships and other things. I mean, so you've got about 900 shells that are that are thrown um, at the Henderson Field area in a given night, maybe. Mm. Um, compared to the bombardment of Tarawa, of, you know, Iwo Jima or Okinawa, yeah. Saipan. I mean, yeah, you name, yeah, yeah. name an island. It's really pretty paltry. But that shows you the level of violence that, that you know, that, that eventually the Americans are going to be able to unleash. Yeah. How many um, aircraft are, there, are operating out of Henderson Field? Does it does it start off with a sort of skeleton crew and then build into something quite formidable? Yeah, it's like a couple of dozen, couple of three dozen fighters for the most right. part, and right. these are these are mainly wildcats. I, I think most of them, and so you know they're they're not as fast as the zeros, they're not as maneuverable, but these are good pilots, and they're going to yeah. find a way to equalize. But they, they are. They're a little bit overmatched uh, in terms of numbers and in terms of something of the quality of the aircraft. Mm. The logistics are a problem, too, because yep. as Henderson Field is getting bombarded, that's going to impact your fuel availability and the runways and all this kind of stuff, too. So yeah. in some ways, that's the challenge, too, is to, to keep the airfield in, in a maintainable kind of state. Well, you've got sort of a main airfield that can accommodate medium bombers, and then you've got a fighter strip, too, you know, as, as this goes on. Uh, you know, so so the the airfield complex will be a little bit expanded, but it's really quite small, uh, right. especially by the standards of the European air war. This is a fledgling of kind of operation. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah, and, yeah. And of course, Japanese know exactly where it is for for the point of view of targeting <laughs> That's it. For sure. There's no mystery involved in <laughs> yeah. in what they're what they're attacking. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it's because there are aircraft at Henderson Field that you need that the Japanese are having to res- well, both sides in fact are having to resupply at night, aren't they? Because daytime is simply too dangerous. The, the threat of aircraft against naval power, it's just, there's just no point trying, is there? And the Japanese get pretty adept at running things by night. And the battle at um, Savo Island shows that, doesn't it? That they're well adapted and, and uh, into running night operations. Yeah, I, I mean, I would even argue that the Japanese are, are more adept at night ops 
throughout most of this war, uh, you know, and, yeah. and you see it certainly in the on the naval side in the battle Battle of Sabo Island, mm. uh, and also, but also the the ability of the Japanese to land reinforcements and eventually to evacuate people at night, kind of under the noses of the Allied fleet. Yeah, sure. Uh, but also, so this is the Tokyo Express. The, the Tokyo Express, as sort of defined, is that bombardment that I alluded to earlier. That's as most Americans call it. They're, they're like, okay, every night we hunkered down in our bunkers and dugouts, and then the Tokyo Express pounded us, you know, and it was a yeah. nightmare and it was horrible and it was, you know, XYZ. And it, so this is, these, are, these are Japanese warships coming close to the island and just bombarding and then scuffling yeah. away again. Yeah, coming down what's often called the slot, those narrow waters between yes. Savo and, and uh, that north coast of Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that they're able to operate there tells you that, that you don't have a great allied naval presence, at least at night sometimes. So all of this is contested, of course. I mean, there's surface engagements going on massively, like we discussed the other time. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so <laughs> you're having to deal with that night by night. But also, I would say, you know, during the campaign, the Japanese, mostly at night, are able to land reinforcements more or less at their at their will, with the exception of, uh, like, in the November-December time window, they're going to be sending in uh, a, a reinforcing group of about 10,000 guys that are hit by Allied air, and they lose about 70% of their transport, something like that. Wow. Um, that is really a key moment in the battle when you're starting to see the Allies gain control of the air sufficiently yeah. to, to affect yeah, sea yeah, operations, yeah. too. But uh, it doesn't pr- prevent the Japanese, once they pull the plug on this thing by late January and February, from evacuating probably about two-thirds of their, their people right under mm. the noses of the Allies. And and I would argue in, in land ops, too, mm. I mean, they're embracing night fighting much more than are the Americans throughout this war. It's one of the things I really criticize about, about the, the U.S. Army in particular in the war, because I see this tendency for the Americans all the way through up until like the night vision era. The tendency is, okay, let's fight our daylight operations. And then at night we hunker down, we get into our holes and we shoot at anything that moves. Yeah. And then we, the next day go in advance and we do whatever, you know, and, and I think that's a very problematic and passive way to fight a war. So the Japanese are going to launch their land attacks at night. Yeah. And infiltration is the thing they're worried about to the point of paranoia, but, but justifiably so because the Japanese have completely embraced that. Yep. When um, certainly when the British first run into the Japanese in you know places like Burma, that the Japanese ability to move with initiative at night and in jungle creates this sort of myth of a Superman soldier, doesn't it? Is that is that the right. ja- Japanese are so good at it and have embraced it? And and after all, the Japanese army, even at this stage, is far more experienced than the um, than the U.S. forces because it's had all these years in China. Uh, getting its stuff together, hasn't it? So it's little wonder that there are things that they excel at and that the Americans don't have an answer to because all the accounts are all about, it's all about at night you you hunker down, you wait, you bite your nails and you end up shooting at each other mainly. You do. There's so many friendly fire incidents yeah. and it's yeah. tragic. Yeah. Um, and I, I would, yeah, I mean, the infiltration is a, is a thing throughout the whole Pacific War. Uh, there are times throughout this war when, when the Americans are sort of completely psyched out. An example is the initial phase of the, of the New Georgia battle, which is, yeah. you know, mid-1943. The 43rd Division has it has rumors going around that there are Japanese roaming around at night in robes with sabers that are cutting off people's heads and that they're ninjas or something. And it's just like, I mean, you see a few commanders uh, in the U.S. Army who really are going to begin to embrace night ops, uh, most notably Terry Allen, uh, whose Big Red 1 
in North Africa is doing some of that. And eventually he's really going to train up the 104th division, which he leads, you know, in October 44 and after that there are going to be difference makers in that regard. Eichelberger is going to lend toward that at times, especially in the, in the Philippines. Um, Hmm. So you do see a few innovators, but I'm I'm really, it's sad to say that most just have this idea. Let's hunker down at night. Well, that to me, that gives the Japanese the initiative uh, to do all this infiltrating, which is precisely what they want to do. Um, and, and, and you do see other times in the war when, when the Americans decide they're going to have night ops, they're going to have these surprising gains that they couldn't have gotten during the day. Yeah, that is curious, that. It is curious. Um, and just to go back to the Japanese, so the Japanese troops are, they're the 35th Infantry Brigade, but actually it's commanded by a major general, isn't it? Kayataki Kawaguchi. Right. The Japanese do have these sort of very flexible brigades, which are, you know, they're, they're not a full division because they haven't got all the kind of, all the guff you would normally expect that comes with a division. But they're very, they're divisional strength in terms of number of infantry. Is that right? Well, eventually, yeah. But of course, initially you're talking battalion by battalion, maybe regiment. And of course, just like the Allies, they're limited by shipping. You know, yeah. as to how they can move people around or whatever. So what they're going to, they're going to have what are, what are tenants, the tendency to call them as butais, uh, um, and I'm no Japanese linguist, but uh, that mean, basically means a battle group. So that could mean, yeah. you know, like what the Allies call a regimental combat team or a battalion yeah. landing team. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's sort of like that. Um, so yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have basically core level uh, size units operating on Guadalcanal on both sides. Yeah, you know, eventually. Uh, but your the buildup is generally battalion by battalion. So when Kawaguchi's involved, it's an indicator that you've got at least half a division to a division involved, you know. Because he's roughly. a major general. Because he's a major general, exactly. And normally you so, don't have major generals commanding brigades. You don't. So it's a little uneven. Of course, eventually you're going to have a Japanese corps commander on the ground, Haya Kotaki. And, yeah. you know, so he's there throughout much of the battle, and he's eventually going to escape too. Uh, but again, that's kind of an indicator that you sort of have multiple divisions operating, but they're really – they're really moving in like more flexible headquarters uh, and administrative setups almost because they have to, you know, the the, the shipping has dictated that the the supply situation, the terrain, you can't move and maneuver entire divisions the way you would in Holland or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you're limited by jungle paths. And uh, so it's really very similar to the Northern coast of New Guinea to Papua New Guinea. What's happening there. This is a, a small unit leaders kind of fight. Um, you know, if you're going to maneuver, that's just the, the reality of the situation. Yeah. Do the Japanese, I mean, after all, people talk about the Germans, how good they are at reorganizing their headquarters and scratching battle groups together. And it's all, and it's all after all, because, because that's the, the circumstances they find themselves in. So they're being smashed up. So they're having to reorganize all the time. Is, is that a similar, similar thing with the Japanese that they get, they get good at reorganizing because they're on the back foot so much? Yeah, because I mean, it is sort of like their version of the Kampf group, you know, uh, yeah. but, it, but nowhere near as sophisticated in terms of combined arms. Uh, yeah. The Japanese, in my view, never use artillery the way a modern army should. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they are kind of improvising, as are the Americans. Yeah. Uh, again, because of shipping, you know, yeah. whatever headquarters we have, we we have aboard a ship. And then, you know, that's going to be preserved perhaps once we're on the ground or not, depending on the circumstance. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's this uh, – throughout Guadalcanal, there's this constant reorganizing, too, mm. on both sides. Um, and, and, as they're they're starting to appreciate the size of the battle <laughs> as it's growing, you know what I mean? It's like – Yeah. And aside from the decision on Guadalcanal that, that, that comes eventually, the, the, the battle itself, as, as you said, is part of the bigger picture. 
it's decisive in the bigger picture too, isn't it? Because the, the Japanese draw people away from New Guinea to fight in Guadalcanal, which which means they don't complete what they're trying to achieve in, in yeah, New Guinea. They're already getting stretched too far. Yeah. Big time. Because yeah. don't forget, there's still, you know, hordes of, of Japanese in Malaya, in yeah. Burma, in yeah. China, in French Indochina, as was. You know, yeah. so they're there already. You know, Japan's not a massive, massive country. No. You know, it's, it's you can only put people so... And their reach is already absolutely enormous. They're stretched very thin, especially from that larger perspective, Jim. Exactly right. Because the bulk of the Imperial Japanese Army is involved on the continent somewhere, on the Asian continent somewhere, especially yeah. in China. And yeah. that's their orientation. Yeah. And so all of this... There's a feral number in Burma as well by this point. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you've had a very successful campaign there in the spring of 1942. And, and so now this is just summer and fall, <laughs> not much yeah. after that. And you're building a rail line there famously, of course. Uh, you know, I mean, all yeah. of that is going on. Um, and the, the sort of high command orientation of the Imperial Japanese Army is towards Asia, not yeah. really yeah. towards the South Pacific. And in some ways, and I, I'm, I'm sort of generalizing, but I do think that this is the, the kind of mindset, um, both the Army and the Navy have gotten the wars they wanted, the Army on the continent and the Navy out there in the greater Pacific against the Western allies. And so the Army's attitude at a very high level is if the Navy wanted that war, it can fight it with its special naval landing forces that we don't like that they have anyway. It's basically naval infantry, um, and, and they're often – often erroneously called Japanese Marines, which yeah. there was no Japanese Marine Corps. So so the army is kind of like, okay, well, we don't worry about the South Pacific and whatever happens there. And then, But under pressure now of events, now they have to worry about it. And so they're kind of on the scratch, right? I mean, they're, they're just sort of doing this improvising as they go, sending out battalion or regimental sized forces as the shipping becomes available to send to wherever they need to go. Their intel isn't good at all on what the, the American presence is after the initial landings. They think they're dealing with maybe a battalion landing team or something. Well, it's two thirds plus of the first Marine division. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why they're going to have to be figuring this out as they go. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why they're going to have a tough time is they don't have good Intel on the Americans and their strength. They also uh, do not coordinate offensive operations well on the ground. With, in terms of combined arms and all that, and the terrain, no, is, no, no. Oh, well, this is, I mean, the, the the services are war, aren't they? And and they're kind of, you know, the navy and the and the army and are just not talking the same language at all at any point. Definitely not. I, I'm surprised they coordinated as well as they did. I, I'm almost surprised that the navy didn't say we're going to abandon the army in February '43. The heck with them. Uh, you know, I'm amazed that they they even coordinate that level when you consider how differently they viewed the war and the kind of antipathy there often was. Yeah. That made U.S. inter-service rivalry look like child's play. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, we are we up to the autumn now? I mean, <laughs> because yeah, because we did mention John Baslone and and, and Bloody yeah. Ridge, which is at like the twentieth of October or something like that. It's that yeah. kind of time. That's, that's like the third the attack. 25th. So they have a second attack is is when it's it's Edson's Ridge, and that's in September. Mm. So that's mid September. That's September twelfth yeah, and fourteenth, and then. The, the thing with Barcelona and that, that last spasm is late October, October 24th exactly. to 26th. Yeah. And right. it's all, and, and, and the reason I just mentioned the dates is because it gives us an idea how this unfolds from a Japanese point of view. It's also right. uncoordinated that they don't launch at the same time. And the reason is that the terrain is so horrible. 
that yes. the the main group fighting over towards Bloody Ridge, fighting against Americal and and uh, and uh, the Marines, is not able to coordinate with that other group fighting towards the Salient, where Barcelona does his thing. the The whole Salient fight was supposed to be a kind of diversion to to, to divert American uh, land assets away from Henderson Field, while the main group tried to get Bloody Ridge and all that again. Hmm. Well. I mean, they go on different days, and so that just shows you. It's it's amazing. I mean, I mean, because when you're there, you can you can still see the wire and stuff around it, and and the, there's the bloody ridge, which is a you know we were talking about last time where where it's still sort of you know it, it drops down at the end of a sort of this finger, this lozenge. But, you know, you're not talking about a huge great height here. I mean, you, you're not even talking bluffs at Omaha. I wouldn't say it's as high as that. You know, it's 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 pretty small beer in terms of high ground and ridges and obviously you know when we're talking about battles in the second world war we're always talking about high ground we're always talking about ridges and stuff and i always kind of think you know when i'm new to a subject and i don't know what they're talking about okay so how high is this ridge i mean is is this like a ridge of (laughs) of chalk downland near where i live you know which is a you know a few hundred feet or whatever or is it or is it something you know like the apennines i mean what are we talking about here you know, or is it the Mitteria Ridge in, in Alamein, which is you don't even know you're on it until you're at the top of it. It's so yeah. shallow. You know, so what we're talking about here is is a really mountainous interior, but in this northern section, it's hills. It's hills running off the mountains. And what you get around, just weirdly around Henderson Field is you've got this river coming through the um, western perimeter of it, effectively, which sort of bisects it and, and is his own protection in a way. And overlooking it at the kind of southern flank of the airfield are these these hills. And as I say, they're, they're, they're ridges, you know, they're small hills. They're kind of, you know, 100 feet high, 150 feet, something like that. And from there, you can sort of see the approaching jungle. And what you've got all the way around it is thick wire and more wire and more wire and mines. So anyone, any Japanese kind of going through the jungle and then emerging into the kind of sort of kunai grass or whatever at the foot of this, as Americans, you're going to be able to see them coming and hear, or more than one, hear mm. them coming. And then all you do is just lay down a heck of a lot of mortars and machine gun fire, and those guys are toast. They just can't get through. And, and what happens at Bloody Ridge and what happens on Edson Ridge as well is it's just one wave after another of people just trying to kind of, through weight of numbers, trying to storm those hills. The difference between the Americans and, say, Chinese nationalists, for example, is that the Chinese nationalists aren't really trained to do this and don't have the right equipment to defend yeah. it, whereas the Americans have 30 calibers, which just can keep pumping lead till you're blue in the face. I mean, you know, you, they just do a nice steady kind of 500 rounds per minute, dun, 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 and you just absolutely just hammer, and you just keep going. And the Japanese just don't have a way through, and they haven't been taught any alternative. They might be, you know, incredibly good at, at, at nighttime infiltration tactics, but they're not good at changing the script when the script doesn't work. Oh, definitely. And and the other thing too, by that point, by the time you're attacking as a Japanese soldier, you have somehow survived about yes, a two to three week odyssey <laughs> through the jungle of maybe, if you're lucky, one meal a day. Mm. Uh, of carrying possibly more weight than your body weight, um, you know, of fending off disease. And so in a way, I think it's amazing the Japanese were able to launch an attack at all. Uh, But when they did, they're totally confused as to who goes where, who goes when, who is in charge, who's what's what. And you have this other subplot going out of Kawaguchi's um, 
subordinate commanders, a couple of them telling him, we can't do this. We've got to call this off. But Kawaguchi, remember, is getting pressure from above. Hey, you got to eliminate that American perimeter there. You know, that's why we're reinforcing you. And he, uh, he knows this, you know, I mentioned the the comparison that, that, uh, that he made. I mentioned this the the last time it'll be like throwing eggs against a steel wall. And so, you know, he's not dumb. He realizes this, but they don't have any other choice in a way after this sort of momentum of whatever it was they were doing to launch this attack. So the, the Americans uh, are, are, I mean, this plays right into their strengths. I mean, hunkering down in their bunkers and just firing all that firepower they possibly can. I mean, that's exactly what you want. I mean, really the hard part, hardest, maybe I should say part of the battle called a canal is what, uh, you know, succeeds that. Once you start to go beyond the perimeter and start to take some of that high ground, the purpose. Yeah, because suddenly you're on the attack. Now you're in the attack and they're doing what they do best, which is hunkering down and defending and fighting to the end. And what you're trying to do is capture some of that high ground so they can't use artillery against Henderson Field and then, you know, push your your influence farther throughout the the habitable part of of Guadalcanal. I mean, those those are the really, really hard fights from that perspective. And that's that is a kind of core level operation, primarily the 25th Division, the Americal and then the second Marine division that's going to be in the mix uh, on this thing too. Uh, so the first Marine division really fights primarily a defensive battle, although not exclusively, of course. Um, that is their primary orientation is hanging on to that perimeter, um, you know, hanging on to Henderson field and doing it under great duress, of course. And that's, I think that's what captures the imagination of all of us, even all these years later. Yeah. And now John, I mean, uh- well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll try and bring the Battle of Guadalcanal or the campaign rather to a conclusion. But we we may not. We uh, we failed last time. <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe the, the, three. Guadalcanal will hold on even longer than expected. We'll see you in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until the Singapore presentation is at. <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? 
Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and John McManus. Now, John, you, you touched on it earlier that, they, that the Japanese do evacuate. They withdraw. And I think that might surprise some listeners who, you know, who are new to this uh, story. That, that, because after all, Japanese resistance is synonymous with not withdrawing and holding out and, and all this sort of stuff. So what's different about Guadalcanal? Or is it that everything's, everything else is different to Guadalcanal, if you see what I mean? It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons for the withdrawal is that this is earlier in the game. Um, yeah. You know, so later in the war, either they're not going to have the option to withdraw because they're totally cut off on an island somewhere. Yeah. Um, or they're just not in a mind to it. I mean, they, they you know, like, like portions of the Philippines, for instance, later mm. in 44 and 45. But uh, in this instance, they have suffered a devastating blow. So in the wake of that failure in late October to, to snuff out the Henderson Field perimeter, you know, when Barcelona does his thing and, and when the Americals in the mix and everything we were just talking about. OK, so they're going to try one more time to send in reinforcements They're They're going to put about 10,000 soldiers aboard ships, transports of different kinds, and they're going to try and spirit them in. And it's at this point that the Americans um, identify, find that convoy, and sink. This I is the Tassafaronga. Yeah, exactly. Which is a real. And you can still see that. You can still see the remains of those those transports on the on the ship on the coast. There, they're still there. The hulks of them are still there. Yeah, not exactly. much, but 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 they are there. You can see them. It's really it's incredible. And that's a key moment in this whole battle because yeah. uh, when that happens, they get hammered, they, don't they? They do. They lose, I think, about two thirds. And you can imagine the morale of those who survive and get ashore uh, and those who are policed up in the water or whatever, you know. So that force is largely combat ineffective in terms of being able to, to launch any kind of attack, effective attack against Henderson Field. And it's happening at the same time the Americans are successfully reinforcing with Americal basically coming into play as a full force by right. you know mid to late november and then 25th division is coming in december so um at that point the japanese go through this crisis themselves of well what do we do now um do we try again do we try by sea and air somehow to, to snuff out this perimeter uh and of course they'd had significant losses at both by now um and the americans were getting stronger and, and so they finally decide you know what, let's pull the plug on this thing and get our guys out of there. And so that's happening by late January and early February. The Americans have no idea. So Sandy Patch by now is the basically the Corps commander in charge of this Army Marine force that's fighting its way steadily across that high ground um, westward along the coast. Um, so, you know, he's hoping to snuff out the remains of the Japanese, and they're finding that the, the Japanese soldiers are in rotten shape. Uh, malnourished, borderline starving, disease has racked the ranks. It's a serious problem for them. Uh, and, and we should just just remind everyone: this is the same Sandy Patch who commands Seventh Army in the seven, um, same guy in Operation Dragoon in August nineteen forty four. Incredible guy. We should, we've got to do a thing on him. We've got to do a story do. on him because he's <laughs> he's he's sure. he's sort of he bubbles under, doesn't he? You know, I mean, those, those with a kind of sort of a little knowledge of of the Second World War kind of have heard of Patch, but he's but he's. He's nothing like as well known or regarded or anything compared to 
his astonishing Second World War career. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And we do need to do a, a, an entire episode on him because he's so interesting as a person. He writes these fascinating, very soulful letters to his wife uh, during the Battle of Guadalcanal and, and of course, thereafter, too. But, but uh, you know, he's talking about his, his kind of inner his inner feelings and emotions and conflicts, a classic kind of commander thing. Cause he doesn't have anybody to share that with. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, so, Often they do write their wives, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and so he's doing this, you know, while he's kind of masterminding this battle, this really, what is an offensive that he's overseeing and it's not so easy. Um, you know, how are you going to supply your guys when they're out there way beyond Henderson field now? Yeah. Who's going to yeah. move all the stuff up? And then that's where the locals come into the equation too, but also in the coast watcher side. I mean, that's a side of this battle we haven't even touched, but it's so important. So he's yep. coordinating that and he's doing inner service uh, with the Marines and doing it very well. So where, where are, where are his letters? Are they, uh, are they a presidential library or are they're they at West uh, Point? At West Point are they? Yeah. Yeah, it's really quite an interesting collection at West Point. And, um, you know, in my research, I didn't really touch on the, the European side because I wasn't looking at him at Seventh Army. I was looking at him as commander at Guadalcanal. So I was just looking at that side of it, but it was it was really interesting. God, there was someone else the other day you were mentioning who was at, at West Point. Some, some, some other letters or something else. That, maybe it was the Japanese. Was it the Japanese stuff? Oh, oh, yeah. You know, we were talking about that. Actually, some there's some great Japanese stuff at the uh, the MacArthur Memorial in North. That's it. Um, so Bill Barge, who's really one of the, the really excellent historians of the Pacific War, and really, especially even of the Japanese side, and, and at Guadalcanal, like the Achiki Detachment and all that, um, Bill had gathered a lot of uh, really good firsthand stuff from Japanese soldiers and some of the surviving commanders. And of course, there weren't many, but but what you had was was quite fascinating. So um, he he donated really selflessly donated a lot of this stuff to the MacArthur Memorial, where it's available now. And you really get then the insight into the into the war from the or the Guadalcanal battle from the Japanese soldiers' perspective. And so, is this stuff being translated by the Americans? Um, yes and no. Um, it's <laughs> some is some isn't, but there's enough that you can you can glean a really a good sense of what what they're saying and doing some of it's mishmashy and confusing in the sense of this unit going there and this commander doing this and this guy feeling that or you know so but but you know once you sort of hash through that it's it's really great stuff and then you you put it alongside the american point of view the american side too and the battle starts to come into focus a little bit more too and right um so i mean i i just think this is crucially valuable stuff on a wider scale uh, the, the Allied Translator and Interpreter section, which was this massive enterprise under eventually under MacArthur's Intel section, um, run by both U.S. and Australians, is going to have uh, an enormous volume of material that they capture from the Japanese in the war. Uh, certainly orders and, 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 you know, unit stuff, unit records and all that. But most interestingly, diaries, soldier and sailor wow. diaries. Uh, that are then translated, usually by Japanese American soldiers, whose and where are contribution those? to the Pacific War is enormous. Um, so the the, uh, the ATIS stuff is uh, at the National Archives, and it's it's a volume of material that's so massive that you'd probably need weeks and weeks just to to go through just it. to but, go through uh, all these diaries and stuff. Yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that, and and um, the the hard part in a way is not necessarily accessing like this guy's account or that guy's account, but it's matching it up with where he would have been 
what battle he was part of, what unit he may have been part of, how he fits right. maybe in the larger picture, if you're interested in that. But and some of it's just mishmash, like anything. You know what I mean? When you when you go into an archive, yeah, some is just rot or whatever, but but some is great. And so there, there's actually a really good volume of material then for Guadalcanal, but also on the New Guinea side, the Papua fights that are going on, you know, Gona, San Ananda, Jerua, Buna, um, all concurrently, you know, so you match all this up and you can see that the Japanese are, are in this sort of crisis mode too, just as, just as the allies are. Uh, right. So it's, it's just really interesting. So yeah, yeah so Hayakotake is unusual in that he is evacuated. Most Japanese commanders die with their people yeah. you know, throughout this war. He's evacuated and he will have a later debacle. Uh, that he masterminds at Bougainville, which we'll we'll do an episode on that on the whole Bougainville perimeter. Yeah, let's it's yes, just, please. It's just unreal what goes on there. But uh, yeah, so they they are able to evacuate. You know, I think something in order about ten thousand soldiers, right. basically under the noses of the Allied fleet uh, in early February over a course of three separate nights. So it's not one night even; it's three nights that they get the jump. In that yep. sense. And that, that that's down to them just being able to do stuff at night, really, isn't it? They've got that figured out. What then happens to, I mean, you say uh, it, it, he ends up on uh, Bougainville, but what happens in general to, to off defeated Japanese officers? I mean, uh, if they, Usually they're if, dead, either well, by exactly. their own hand well, or the well, allies. Well, exactly. See, because, I mean, this is, this is sort of, this is quite peculiar, isn't it? In that you have a, you have a withdrawal. The guy doesn't kill himself. Um, he, he doesn't. They don't fight to the last round and all that. Um, uh, you know the, the horrors that are to follow. Because after we said earlier on, the Japanese troops that they're encountering are, are malnourished. Are they taking prisoners at this stage? The Americans? Yeah, yeah. The Americans are going to take something in order, almost a thousand prisoners. And right. I'm sure some of them were probably you know non-military Japanese civilian contractor types yeah. or whatever. But that's a pretty high number. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So when you consider what it is for uh, when you're coming up against the. The Japanese, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and yeah, when you consider that as of the, the eve of the invasion of Okinawa, so that's almost three years later, the, the U.S. had in, t- in its entirety, I think, 3,500 to 4,000 Japanese prisoners total in their custody. Um, so that tells you a lot of these guys were captured early on at Guadalcanal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like none captured at Buna uh, and hardly any others in Papua New Guinea or whatever. And that as that whole disaster comes to an end, almost around the same time. So, um, you know, that's over by early January and then Guadalcanal's over by early February. Of course, I say over. Well, yeah. I mean, remember, there's Japanese who are stranded there and are going to be roaming around and causing trouble. And so you've got patrols happening throughout, you know, the, the months and, and even, you know, maybe even years that follow in which you could have some level of danger from holdout Japanese there, too. Yeah. Yeah, and Hayakotaki. I think this is so fascinating. So the other thing's unusual, Al, is that he uh, he actually reports to the emperor yeah. about you know what's happened, and he, <laughs> and he he concludes his report, uh, and he says he apologizes to Hirohito personally for for his failure, and he says he concludes his report: my crime deserves more than death. Oh, God, okay. these people. <laughs> I mean, isn't that something? It's like... Yeah, so what does that mean? I mean... That means that it's a crime in a way to lose, and it, and it deserves worse than just death, that, uh, that somehow... The family should be shamed. Maybe, yeah. 
so then what happens to him? So, Well, that's what I was going to say. You ain't seen nothing yet because <laughs> if, if he screwed up Guadalcanal, which, you know, in fairness yeah. to him, there are a lot of other factors outside his control. Where yeah. I do take him to task is that he eventually ends up at Bougainville launching this completely misbegotten attempt yeah. to snuff out the American beachhead at Bougainville. Now, that is, you know, March 1944. So a lot happens yeah. in between here. But he ends up as this sort of woebegone figure. Um, who finds a way to lose throughout the Solomons. I, I think that's his crime that deserves worse than death, launching the, this, these fine soldiers, 10,000-plus guys against the equivalent of two U.S. divisions holding a heavily fortified perimeter. You know where this leads. I mean, that is just idiocy, in, in my opinion. <laughs> just in my opinion. Guadalcanal, it's a tough go because of all these other factors out of his control, air and land, air and sea operations, you know, you can understand, and the terrain, you know, he's he's going to have a tough time of it. Uh, and there is an acceptance, isn't there? That there's an acceptance at the end of Guadalcanal that from the high command of the of the Japanese high command, particularly in the Navy, that, that they're already starting to lose this, this war. I mean, that this is unwinnable. And, and the state of the people that are taken off, there's the sort of 5,000 or whatever it is, Japanese um, soldiers that are taken off. I mean, they are... And those who are captured by the Americans, they're they're completely starving. I mean, they're they're emaciated, they're they're diseased, they're kind of lice ridden. They are, you know, they've got desert sore, you know, jungle sores all over the place. You know, they're in a total, total state, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely barbaric. Yeah, I mean, the Japanese have come to call Guadalcanal Starvation Island, and that yeah. tells you a lot right there. And I, and so, really, I would say, and I, this is just off the top of my head, you know, they're probably losing two to four guys from starvation or disease for every one to, to allied ordnance right. uh, on Guadalcanal among the lands. Yeah, that's hideous, least. isn't it? I mean, you know, so that's that tells you a lot about their circumstance. So the ones who come under American control, you know, as prisoners are in horrible shape, absolutely in, in really emaciated shape and, and whatnot. And, of course, most of them want to die or be killed or whatever because they feel that, Surrender is dishonorable. They've been sort of captured rather than surrender in a way, if that makes any sense, you know, that they've, they've been delirious and in a position and and come under American control or, you know, something like that. And then they feel they've been dishonored, you know, then, and, uh, but as time goes on, their outlook changes because the treatment is generally pretty good. Uh, and they're going to get fed and all that. And, and, you know, your outlook on life changes at that point yep. and you're no longer starving. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you see the very human side of the story, but the, of course the, the ambivalence among the Americans is whether to take them prisoner at all. And if so, how to treat them, you know, and well, all I was going to, I was just going to ask John, what provision do the Americans have um, for prisoners? Because if they're not taking any, and, and shipping is precious. After all, we've talked about this a lot. So, so if you're not taking any prisoners, you're not going to you're not going to leave any you know landing ship empty in the possibility you'll be taking a you know a, a regiment of Japanese, I don't know where to to to, to coop them up and uh, hold them prisoner. Does does that then fade from the American logistic consideration? It is. It is in a weird way. It's something you wouldn't have to worry about as a Pacific yeah. logistician. Um, we're not going to have to move lots of Japanese prisoners or feed them <laughs> or whatever. And there's, there is actually a, uh, like a, a, an interpretation or what would I call it? Like a counter Intel team yeah. that, that's in play, but under an army captain named John Burden, B-U-R-D-E-N. Yeah. And he and his guys, a few of them who are, are Japanese Americans, but not all, uh, you know, they're they're kind of frustrated during the Battle of Guadalcanal, a lot of it, because what they're there for and what they want is to interrogate Japanese POWs, 
to, to impress upon their fellow soldiers and Marines just how important these guys are and why you want to take them prisoner. Yep. They don't have much business initially, you know. Um, eventually, they're going to, but it's still small potatoes when you consider, you know, you're capturing 275,000 Axis soldiers in May and 1943 in Tunisia, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. This is this is hardly anything. And so the shipping isn't much the problem. It's, uh, you know, what the attitude of the general soldier Marine is about yeah. having these guys and treating them well. And, yeah. I, you know, and I do think one thing that, that's, you know, we've talked about the seamy side of the Allied war effort and, and racism yeah. and all that in previous episodes. This is really the more upbeat side of the story is, is generally, in spite of all the bitterness and hatred and race hatred and savagery and all that, the Japanese POWs, once they get that far back in the chain, are generally treated pretty well. Right. Um, you know, in part by the, the guys who are I- interrogating them. Yeah. Because they sure. find that they're going to get a lot more out of these guys when they, yeah, they treat they them stuff, well. Yeah. 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 So disprove disprove everything they've been told about how they're going to be murdered and, was, yeah, yeah. You know, and so on, tortured. God, it's a very, uh, it, when you start thinking about that they don't, you don't need to feed anyone. I mean, it, it, that, that, because after all, that, it, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? If you've not got to feed any prisoners of war, it, I mean, that's that means you can bring more um, rifle ammunition or whatever um, like to, yeah. go to, to go back yeah. to go back to the slam marshal. But you also do want some right. prisoners of war because you want you want intelligence, don't you? Yeah, you need to pick yeah. their brains. Yeah, exactly. Especially from, but these also guys. The, the other thing. I think the other thing that's that we is the gradual but sure advancement of the U.S. Navy in this period you know obviously midways is great great victory and all the rest of it but but you know subsequent battles in in guadalcanal you know the u.s navy definitely comes out second best you know so it's not like midway is the the point from which the u.s navy is then untouchable that's not the case at all but you do see it kind of growing in strength and size and organization uh, as as a huge kind of U.S. machine well, starts to kind of sort of kick into gear. Well, baseball bases are built in Australia, well, more more shipped over. Well, from, which which raises you know, the question, doesn't it, of, of organization? How is the you know because the, the, that's the this this war is being. I mean, the Pacific is is basically a third of, of the world across, isn't it? How is this being organized? How are the task forces being organized? What's the what's the sort of sinew that the Americans are setting up? And and is it this thing that, you know, everything that really crucial is always happening on a join between one task force and another or one one sort of fiefdom and another? Because that, that's what happens so often in war, isn't it? Is that, mm-hmm. that is that you may well have carved up the globe with your red pen, but when it comes to <laughs> what what then happens <laughs> Uh, it, it turns out quite differently. So, how are the how are the how's the navy organising itself, and how's the army fitting around that? Because after all, the army is a much bigger part of this than the US Marine Corps. How's it all being organised? Yeah, well, this is the hard part. I mean, it, it's in a way. It, I mean, we talked about land forces having battle groups or battalion landing teams, ready model. So you got task force and task groups, uh, much the same kind of notion um, that are they're there. You know, a ta- one task group might be oriented toward bombardment and landing support force. Um, Another, the aerial side. I mean, it, you know, interesting thing, too, from the from the naval point of view, um, and, and I think James made a great point that, yeah, Midway's a great victory, but, you know, it, the Allies are still going to be on the wrong end of the, of the naval war for a lot in Guadalcanal. The losses are yeah. staggering. Guadalcanal yeah. is the second deadliest battle in the history of the U.S. Navy, um, only eclipsed by Okinawa, you know, a couple of years wow. later. And that's when you have the kamikazes in play. From mm. a fleet carrier point of view, you could say that this battle is something of a disaster because yeah. you lose half your fleet carriers. You lose Wasp and Hornet. 
Yeah. And, yep. and you, you know, that's, that's really important this earlier in the war. And it's one of the reasons why the Navy is going to be leery about operating in these waters. So as far as organization, Nimitz is the ultimate sort of mastermind back at Pearl Harbor, the commander in chief of the Pacific fleet. And he's got basically three components of the Pacific under his command, North, Central, and South. And South is the important part at this point. Gormley, Admiral Robert Gormley, Vice Admiral, is, is under him. So he really is the key kind of operational theater commander. And he's ultimately, and he gets sacked, you know, doesn't he? He gets, yeah. he gets moved on. So by October, he's found wanting by Nimitz, and he is sacked in favor, of course, Halsey, um, who then really, this is Halsey's finest moment, I think most, most of us would agree. Uh, because he does create a kind of a new aggressiveness and, and he, and also a, um, and I think a better kind of jointness to, to operations. Uh, you, but he's also like a lot of really successful commanders who resuscitate a bad situation. He's also fortunate and timing is everything. Of course. You know, so the, just like when Eichelberger took over at Buna, um, he's fortunate in the sense that you're starting to begin to get reinforced a little bit. You know, in this case, it's the same thing for Halsey. Um, but I think Garmley's found wanting because he never visits Guadalcanal personally. Uh, so he's not made up. He's, he's got health issues, um, serious dental problems and, and, uh, you know, that, that are causing him immense pain. He's got what's perceived as a negative outlook, uh, which is never good perception for a commander. And I don't know that that's fair, but that's the perception yeah. at the time. He's an interesting character because he's the guy who gets sent over to, uh, over to London in, in the autumn of 1940. Uh, from a naval point of view, you get Spatz goes over there and various others, but 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 he Gormley goes over, and Gormley is the guy who recommends the ABC one agreement, which is a draft agreement of the German first policy, which comes out in March nineteen forty one, I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah, right around Lend Lee's time too. Yep, right. It's all tied in with that. He should be uh, <laughs> venerated a little higher than he is by by we Brits because. He's quite influential. Yeah. Well, and he has been. You know, there was a, an article that just came out in the latest issue of Journal of Military History, kind of defending him, um, not saying he's the greatest ever or something, but saying that perhaps he's gotten a little bit of bad rap from historians. And mm. I, I always think that kind of stuff is intriguing. You know, that it's like, okay, well, you know, why would that be? And it's, I, you know, I highly recommend taking a look at that article because uh, maybe you'll see him a little bit differently. I would never argue he did a good job. Or that no. <laughs> no, I think generally speaking, I think I think commanders are you know senior commanders that are fired are usually fired because they need to be fired. Something's gone wrong. I, right? I don't think there's that many really glaring travesties. I'm sure there's one or two I, I can't think of off the top of my head, but there are some. Uh, one one that I would think of is Burfi Brown in uh, the Battle of Atu, the Seventh Infantry Division commander in May 1943. Who oh, just and there's the two Holland, of course. Deal. There's uh, General Holland, Oh, my God, yeah, Ralph Smith. Yeah, I mean, but, of course, we're talking even higher level. You know, once you're – because Gormley is okay. sort of like an army commander, you know, yeah, from a yeah. land point of view. And it, yeah. So, yeah, I do think he probably should have been sacked. And there's no question Halsey did a better job uh, and, and brought a kind of vitality to the effort that maybe was absent beforehand. Yeah, and, and just sort of changes the tone of the of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, doesn't he? And he's yeah. a big character, and he's known as Bull, and he's always goddamning, and you know, wanting to kill Japs and all this kind of stuff. So, oh, yeah. as you say, it's all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, he, he's, I mean, it's a front. I know it's a kind of media it's such thing. A, it's he's appalling. I think on some levels because just this this bloodthirstiness about him, and 
And I don't know that's necessary. I mean, Spruance is a fine commander, too, and he's not necessarily spouting off about wanting to kill everybody in Japan or something, you know. Um, so Halsey is is, uh, is this bulldog. No, but it represents, it represents a change of tone, doesn't it? It does, it's, and it's, you need him. You need him at this moment, and you need him throughout the war, and he certainly has a he, – he's a rallying point. You know, we've talked about perception, you know, in this mass media age and all that uh, – Halsey is very good at that and, and sort of rallying the American public, I think, too. But he, he certainly has some downsides, too, you know, as you see <laughs> later in the war. Um, but yeah, he's the right person for this this job. And mm. I, I, so I think also he's he's more highly respected by his ground colleagues, too. Yeah. And, I, I you know, I mean, so if I'm Sandy Patch or I'm Vandergrift and, you know, and I'm marooned at Guadalcanal, uh, I don't really like that my theater commander has never really been there. Uh, yeah. that that is a point of resentment just as when eichelberger is in the mess up at buna he doesn't like that macarthur is back safe at port moresby sending out communiques that make it seem like he's at the front when he's yeah. never visited yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. you're always going to have resentment over something like that aren't you i mean yeah that's you know so so gormley probably should have visited guadalcanal entirely reasonable uh, i would have thought bone of contention yeah. that though that doesn't that, that that doesn't make these guys sound at all unreasonable it it, it but is it fair to say though that the war in the Pacific is is the Navy's war? Just as you said, the Japanese, the Japanese, you know, the, the Navy's war is in the Pacific, and the and the Army's war is on the continent, as it were, for the Japanese. Is it the Navy's war really? Well, I think Ernie King would see it that way, but uh, yeah. I think that uh, his Army colleagues <laughs> would perhaps dissent from that just a bit. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, certainly, of course, you know, like you said, Al, it's it's one third of the world's surface of ocean and whatnot, obviously. Yeah. The, the naval part is is the lead point and it's crucial but in the end um the ground has to be fought over and taken yeah. it just yeah. does uh you're yeah. not going to be able to run this whole war and get to tokyo just with naval forces um and uh, this is the pattern you see that air power obviously is crucially important because planes are so deadly to ships and thus you that had need airfields you know all throughout yeah. the pacific and all that business um and nobody's going anywhere without the navy I mean, <laughs> quite obviously, um, and the resupply and all that. But in the end, someone's got to fight and take the ground. And, and so in our popular memory, that someone tends to be the Marines, but it's it's really the Army on a much greater scale, too. But you see that already at Guadalcanal. Um, and so, you know, the, the, it's like, a, I guess it's a chicken and egg argument that uh, and, and me yeah. being myopic as i am i i do see it <laughs> in the end as a ground troops war um yeah. because and that's who does most of the fighting in the dying most yeah. for the most part yes of course but i mean james and i've talked about this a lot on the regular podcast that that germany first yes but if you look at it in terms of a naval effort the war in the pacific is first isn't it i mean this is the the, the germany first is is sleight of hand really isn't it well, I just discovered the other. I discovered the other day, which I hadn't realised, is that there is this. You know, there's this huge landing craft program from May 1942 to April 1943, and and that is coming at the expense of other shipbuilding. So they then put a halt to it. But what um, King does is authorise another production surge in the summer of 1943 to create a new um, LCT. Mark Seven, which becomes the LSM, I think is all the, uh, I think something like that. So it's like a, it's like a different version of it. And 
you know, obviously they're absolutely desperate for landing craft for Overlord. They're desperate for landing craft in the Mediterranean. You know, it's the thing that's stifling absolutely everything. And the whole lot gets taken to the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah, which is what King would want. So, yeah, from the U.S. Navy point of view, it kind of is Japan first. But you know what? We only have the luxury of that because the Royal Navy can handle probably the majority of operations in the Mediterranean and the the Atlantic and European theater. So, um, you know, so obviously the U.S. Navy is going to be heavily involved in in Europe, but but the priority probably is for Europe. And it has to, especially from a carrier point of view, from a fleet carrier point of view, absolutely. So you're not going to have your fleet carriers operating in the Mediterranean. It's, it's insane. And so if I'm Ernie King, of course I have to look at the war that way. But in the end, I also kind of have to sit down with Hap Arnold and figure out how this fits with what the Army Air Forces are going to be doing on those many important airfields and George Marshall um, to figure out who's going to actually take this ground for me and not just take it, but maintain it and engineer it and build those airfields and the ports, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that that takes us into the inner service coordination realm, which uh, I think those three generally do a remarkable job of working together, given their various, you know, agendas and differences and all that. Given Arnold's agenda to create an independent air force, uh, I think he ends up coordinating fairly well. Yeah. Well, he sort of end up ends up sort of conceding that that'll have to come after the war when he's proved his point, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. the where he, where he ends up, isn't it? Essentially, so they get what they want. Of course, they're independent air force, though they never prove their point, and that's the that's what <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. is so funny. It's the irony, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, yeah. But they were right from the beginning that the air force shouldn't have been part of the army. I mean, that was just sort of a silly administrative hangover, you know, from from the past, and so they were right. But but they were not right about what they were hoping to prove. But I'm thinking this is a this is a rabbit hole that we should go down in a separate pod. <laughs> I think it'd be a fun rabbit hole. I think we should. Yeah. I think I agree, I agree 100 percent, James. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll call this meeting to order. Um, uh, thanks. <laughs> Before we vanish down any other um, warrants. Well, we were in danger of sort of keeping going till 9 p.m., weren't we? Yeah, and, we were. We were a, a little. By, yeah. by, the, by the end of it, we'd have it have been so wide ranging. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fabulous. Right. Very well, good. thanks everybody for listening. We hope that, um, well, if nothing else, you know a little bit more about Guadalcanal and everything else that we've managed to cover. And a bit more about Hap Arnold. I, I would, <laughs> a bit more Hap Arnold. I would yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you uh, again for joining us. We'll see you all very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. See ya. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.